Hello, everybody. You're listening to Speaking with Accent. We are Accent Student Media, or Austin Community College's student news group. My name is Nathan Spear. I'm the editor-in-chief of Accent and a journalism major over at the community college. And I'm joined by... Joseph Hurt. I am the entertainment journalist for Accent. I'm also the... Uh, I'm also a RTF major. And that's enough about me. <laughs> Hi, um, Maricela Perez. I'm also a journalist at Austin Community College. Right now, I've been helping with the promotions of Accent, and I also serve at the Student Government Association. Hi, I'm Joshua Serrato. I'm the political edit editor at Accent. I'm a history major and a member of the International Youth and Students of, uh, for Social Equality at ACC. Today, we are at the um, co-op studios in, in Austin, and we have gathered some interesting topics throughout the week that have kind of sparked our interest and we've done some research and we're starting to start it out light with kind of like what are some of the benefits of being in a community college which is something we can all relate to at this table and certainly many of our audience members will also be able to relate to. So um, leading that conversation will be Maricela um, who's looked into the topic throughout the past few weeks. Yeah so now that well at least me I'm leading in my last um, year I was in community college, so I've been thinking a lot of what has been like being a transfer student, what are the benefits, what are, you know, the downsides. And apart from that, uh, I also wanted to know more about like the history of community college. And it surprised me a lot because it just started as a movement from Ivy League's um, leaders. So actually the president of the University of Chicago and a, a few others from like, for example, the U University of Stanford, uh, wanted to divide Ivy Leagues in a way that it was more about research. And they thought that general education was more on high schools than on universities. So what they wanted to do was like to divide between junior college and senior college. Mm -hmm. So what they started to do was like to promote high schoolers, uh, high school to uh, include programs like university level programs, right? But this high school then became junior college, what we now mm -hmm. know community colleges. So what they were doing is that only the ones that could get an associate or graduate from those junior college were the ones that could go to the senior college, right? So it was more like an elite kind of movement, like mm -hmm. only these kind of people could actually transfer to these big universities. But community college was like a necessary step, like high school almost, into going into like an yeah, advanced college? Exactly. Like they wanted to, uh, they don't want to take like general education on them because they thought like universities shouldn't be like that. Mm -hmm. It should be more about research, like advanced research. Like a focused study kind exactly. of thing. Exactly. So like, you know that the first two years of university is more about general education. So mm -hmm. they were like, that should be on high schools or another kind of institutions. But at the same time, in the 20th century, a lot of people were like, we need, we need work. We need some kind of, you know, um, professions. And that's when community college became more like a social movement of people trying to get like certain like certificates or like easy, uh, easy to do jobs. And that's when community college also became what we see now, which is like you can either transfer or you can just get a certificate on associates and mm -hmm. do any kind of job. That's kind of funny because I feel like there is such a stigma nowadays about like community college being just second high school. Exactly. So it's weird to think that in its origin, it literally was just a second high school. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. So that surprised me a lot. And I think like thinking that into consideration and now seeing like how a lot of Ivy Leagues are actually looking for community college to join the universities and how even a professor uh, Ted Hatchi has said like how much liberal arts education is more in community colleges than say my beliefs is like tells you a lot how much our education has changed or maybe also students in regards how we see education itself mm -hmm. so I just wanted to ask you guys like how has been your experience so far I know uh, most of us have done like different kind of like courses and different Thailands at ACC but just hear your perspective of like what you like about being a transfer student. Should we start with me? Yeah, sure. Yeah. I think um, it feels underwhelming in a lot of ways. It feels like second high school. I, I definitely relate to that. But um, I don't know. Like, like I, I see people on like Snapchat and Instagram, and they're having a lot of fun at like these four-year universities, and it just feels like, damn, like well, why didn't um, I mm. go there? But I think it, it is definitely like a great opportunity, and it is like what you make out of it. Mm -hmm. um, and I think it helps people save a lot of money. And it's like, it's really cool, maybe a little bit underwhelming at times, but I don't know. That's what I think. 
I can agree partially, like definitely with like mm-hmm. the objective things with like it's a money saver and like there's definitely so I'm um, also like a, a finishing off my my journalism degree over at Austin Community College. Um, so I've been there for a couple of years now, two or one over one. Um, and so, yeah, there's definitely like initially starting out um, definitely that feeling of like, oh, I'm missing out on that four year experience, like with dorm life. And all that like sort of th- dorm life was a big one for for me and like that sort of sense of community. But the I like the reality of mm-hmm. like a community college and that like it's not just like people, I guess, of the same age group, um, you know, like doing the same things or like kind of having a similar backgrounds almost or just like being formatted into having similar lifestyles. You know, like with dorm life is like mm-hmm. they're living identical, identically almost. Mm-hmm. But with with. Um, Austin Community College, it feels like there's a lot of one freedom of like course choice and stuff, you know, like you could, um, I think a big problem is, is taking courses at Austin Community College that are like, um, like general education courses is just because like, that's what I was doing initially. And that's just kind of like, not, yeah, not exciting. And it's like, I could be doing this at a four year. And so that's, what's disappointing. But what I couldn't be doing at a four year is taking like jewelry making classes for like really cheap or like going to like the student farm, you know, in Elgin or um, doing all these like music credit classes, you know, that are like part of my interest, but not something I'd be wanting to drop a bag on at mm-hmm. UT for, you know mm-hmm. what I mean? Um, something I noticed is like, there's a real sense of like, not everyone, of course, but I, I think there's definitely a lot of people who are, this is like their life, like this is their goal and like yeah. they're going to do anything to get there. And this is like one opportunity for them. They're really making use of it. That's something I noticed, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would agree with uh, what everyone said. I, I really like the diversity. The saving money is definitely a big plus. Um, I don't. I, I am looking forward to transferring next year uh, after this next semester, but I, I wouldn't say I regret uh, missing out on the first two years at all. I, I like, uh, I've enjoyed it here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Where is everyone transferring? If I can ask. UT. You got it. UT. <laughs> <laughs> I think everyone's going to apply to UT. Yeah, I think that's the big consensus. Yeah. Um, what Andrew? about you, Adam? Probably U of H or something. I mean, no, I'd lo- yeah, I'm also going to apply to University of Houston. I'd love to do UT. Um, it just favor- is a lot more. Um, sorry, continue. Sorry about that. My favorite uh, teacher in uh, high school went to U of H. Oh, really? What was the oh. subject? Poetry. Uh, oh, yeah. really? Yeah, I study poetry. That's cool. Oh, really? Yeah. They have a really cool, um, like, script writing, like, um, like playwriting, like, uh, courses there. And, like, they do have some, like, film stuff. Obviously, it's overshadowed by the Goliath <laughs> yeah. that's UT. But um, I just mean, um, yeah, like, with um, UT, it's kind of just, um, it's 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 more choosy on, like, who's getting in. You know, it's yeah, not, it's sure. acceptance rate is, like, really low. Yeah, and I also think that in community college, you have, like, you know, the opportunity to have, like, more personalized education. Like, the the classes are not big. You get that, that opportunity to talk with your professor to maybe get to know your classmates a, wee, a bit more. Mm-hmm. But I'm, I'm kind of scared of, like, transferring and mm-hmm. getting that shock of, like, you know, 40 students in one class, and then you're so... Like uh, away from the professor, you barely listen, <laughs> and then you're all scared to go into office hours. Yeah. I, I'm kind of scared of that, and like you know how how easy it is to get lost in the. Mm-hmm. I feel like in the people, yeah. I feel like ACC is pretty coddling in that way. Like you do have so much access to these resources, like counseling mm-hmm. and like your class selection, and also financial aid. Like what you're saying with like personalizing your degree plan is like kind of like what I was trying to reach out earlier. Is like. So like me personally, I, I've been doing this journalism track and a lot of these courses I was doing in an early college track in high school. But um, and so it's just like, oh, kind of repeating stuff. It's more fun because like the ACC environment is cool and I'm choosing my my own stuff. But the personalization comes in and has come in this latest semester because mm-hmm. you can you can open up your the amount of majors you're doing. Like you can do two majors covered by financial aid as well as like multiple certificate courses. And so That's I'm talking so cool. like like continuing education programs like the like music credit courses like I'm taking like a digital synthesis like degree plan course like what? just for funds and it's covered under financial aid what is that i don't i'm not familiar it's with like that. um so GarageBand is the entry level but like you know like midi like um mm-hmm. just going into like music production kind of things audio engineering like but the minor stuff so it's like for the working musician one of the classes i'm taking is like 
a mini rock band class. It's called Small Commercial Ensemble. And basically it's just 10 students split into groups of like just like related instruments or interests. And then you can just have a supervised band by this late, so this, cool. the professor's like in a shoe, local shoegaze band. Oh my God. I know. So it's like pretty cool. It's just really cool that how accessible it is. Like all yeah. of that's covered under financial aid and I can just do it. Like, so is that a part of your degree plan? Like you're getting credit for that? I made your... it a part of my degree plan by opening up my, um, what's it called? My, what, what um, degrees I'm, I'm going after. Okay, cool. Yeah. So yeah. it's just really easy to do all that. Yeah. And like, as you say, it's so flexible, like to switch your majors, so just to add one. You know, it's mm-hmm. like you can do that. I think enough for your university. Uh, as someone that has changed her major so many times, mm-hmm. it's just <laughs> so good to have that because you're not stressing out. You can just different ha- have different classes and have an advisor. So it definitely helps if you are like someone that is not like that clear about what you want to do in the future. I think. Yeah. Okay. What's the worst part of community college for you guys? I want to. I want to be negative for a minute. Um. I would definitely say, like, early on, I would have definitely agreed with you. I, I, I do Uber driving for a while, and so when you're going downtown Austin, you're going to see flocks of, like, you know, college students that are the same age as me, you know, and they're all, like, all friends hanging out and right next to their campus, like, walking around. And even my parents both went to UT, and they're always talking about it. So it definitely is almost like a FOMO feeling, like, with dorm mm-hmm. life and, like, missing out on that element of, like, shared, like, youth community, I guess, you know what I mean? Like, in a college space, you know, like, that stuff you see on TVs. But I feel like, one, in this economy, it's it's unrealistic. And two, it's also very much, you know, idealized. Like it's kind of, I don't know. I feel like the the movies have kind of propagandized it a little bit because I I feel like life, if like as someone who's like living for themselves and like has siblings who did the dorm life thing, it's like the flexibility and freedom of like being able to like be that have that independence as opposed to just like living under a school is like really mm-hmm. cool is a really cool thing um so i guess for for context this is my first semester so i am like, <laughs> I, I don't yeah. have as much experience under the belt as adam right i think on my side is like if you don't have like a good advisor or you don't know pretty much the resources it can be very very confusing to get around and find like the right courses you have to take like uh, if you're paying out of pocket then you might waste money if you took the wrong class and that apart from that you worry about the credits that you have like are you gonna transfer if not and they're gonna reject me because i have so many credits mm-hmm. and also you know all the college application of like okay i have to you know it's not only about having a good jpa i think it's about actually you know yeah. ha- being involved with something that you have a good resume <laughs> to, to, to upload so it's so many things that uh, to be a transfer student that it, it gets a lot of anxiety especially during the uh, college applications right yeah i think timing is a big thing that's yeah, been a timing problem is, is a big thing i feel yeah. like i'm never aware of when i should start looking at transferring or yeah. like when i should be applying for fafsa just because like it's not as relevant to me in community college but it is going to be relevant to me when i transfer yeah yeah and you know if you don't like if you don't like pay attention you might get lost real quick mm-hmm. and then <laughs> you're gonna be like it, it doesn't matter but it does mm-hmm. so i think like you ha- I, I don't know how, how is the high school experience here in regards to applying to a uh, university i don't know if it's harder from a freshman perspective or a transfer perspective but i know like freshmen have more like uh have like more a uh, chance in a sense that the 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 amount of like students that can be uh, accepted in a university uh, a transfer student is lower than freshmen mm-hmm. so i think you're always competing a lot if you're a transfer student. What do you think, Josh? I don't like having to transfer because I have to do the college applications all over again. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah, it's just like we're just stalling. We did a mini application to stall for this bigger one later. Is yeah. what it feels like. I, I hate the bureaucracy. And I hate, I mean, <laughs> it sounds so <laughs> college student of me, but I, I hate how like you go to one department and they tell you just to go to another one and then they tell you to that go sucks. back. And mm-hmm. It's just like an endless yeah. circle. It, it's, that's a big thing with ACC too. So it's just such a big school. Yeah, exactly. And also it's 50 years old, happy birthday, but it feels like it's so new as well. Yeah. Like it's changing so much. I feel like there's departments that are getting total reworks and stuff. So like, it's like, like finding access, like it seems like sometimes they don't even know where those resources are accessed at the moment because like it's been changed recently. No, I like I had a really rough time to find a good advisor. And even I went in person, they were like, sorry, there are no appointments and all of that. And they didn't seem to care to help me. So I find another person that was an advisor and she just helped me to find one for me. Mm. So it's like, if you don't know people, they're not going to help <laughs> you sometimes. Yeah. So I that's will, very stressful. I will counter that though and say that my experience with advising has been really like like the uh, like uh, 
really good. It has been really good. Like I don't, we don't, we shouldn't disparage them too much because I, personally, it's, it's I've just benefited by a lot. chance though. Like you just like get a good right. advisor, yeah. and it kind of just yeah, it sucks. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's a process for sure, and especially because advisors are so necessary at this stage, like this college yeah. stage, like in yeah. transfer colleges, you need mm-hmm. a good advisor, and so like having easy access to that one so is important that is a, the time for this segment let's go ahead and move on to the okay, next one cool so who are we moving on to um did we want to do uh joseph did you want to go next uh sure yeah i'm open to that um so my topic is i asked everyone to find a movie or tv show that they're interested in that recently came out and kind of just talk a little bit about it like what what are you guys excited about so i want to start with maricella okay well, I think you know which one I'm going to talk about <laughs> because we watched it together. Um, but I we recently watched uh, The Boy and the Heron, but it's actually uh, the translation would be How Do You Live? That's actually uh, the name in Japanese. But it's by Studio Ghibli, and Hayao Miyazaki directed it, and he created the story. And it's the first film in 10 years that Studio Ghibli released. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and they did it like without marketing, without trailer. They just mm-hmm. pretty much put it out there. And I really liked it, but basically the plot is about uh, a boy called Mojito, right? And he just lost someone really important in his life. And it's during, the, uh, it's during war in Japan, and they just have to move to another um, part of the country, or is it England? I remember. No, it, it's another part of Japan, yeah. and it's um, it's the so he loses his mom. That's mm-hmm. not really a spoiler. Uh, his mom dies in a fire, and um, they move to their aunt's house, which is like in the Japanese countryside. Yeah, and then he starts like uh, seeing this kind of uh, weird bear, which is the heron, and that they start like a relationship or like a friendship. And this heron is going to take him to this kind of war between the living and the dead. And that's where he's going to, like, basically explore explore his own grief, but also, like, explore this magic world where he's going to find another family members and all of that. Cool. So th- for those that don't know, Studio Ghibli did, like, movies like Spirited Away yeah. and, like, Princess Mononoke and... How's Moving Castle. How's, mo- how's Moving Castle, yeah. yeah. Um, so do you think it was keeping true? Like, how do you think it compares to those previous, like, iconic I, works? I don't want to hype it up too much, but it's my favorite. No, it's my favorite <laughs> Studio Ghibli movie. Yeah. I think it's, like, it's his best thing. I mean, he's been doing this for so long, and it's just, like... I think it's crazy how he just never runs out of creativity and imagination. Mm-hmm. It's like, a new story? It's a new story. Wow. Yeah. 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 And it's, like, a mix of everything you have seen. Like, you, you see these kind of patterns of, like, you know magical creatures, like uh, spiritual mm-hmm. concepts or, uh, you know, this kind of uh, spiritual uh, travel mm-hmm. of that the main character has to go through. And war. I mean, Japan and wartime, war, that's like a big thing. It's actually the, the I read that is his most personal um, film because first, when he was a child, his dad worked in a manufacturing uh, air force and that's mm-hmm. what uh, the boys' uh, fathers do. And also during creating his film, he had this idea of like uh, that each uh, character will have like an um, a meaning, right, of the people that exist in real life. So he's the he's the boy, and then another. Uh, let me find his name. Is it uh, the co-founders of Studio Ghibli, Takeshi Honda? Uh, no, sorry. Um, Hisao Takahata was, uh, he died in 2018 and he symbolized the great, great father, the great uncle. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. So he changed the whole storyline because he couldn't deal with the grief. Like he completely changed that. And it's also about his own grief, right? In, in the story. And the, this boy and the heroine is basically like uh, um, a film for his grandson from when he's going to, you know. So, yeah, yeah that, that movie was. Amazing. If you guys have a chance to check it out, definitely watch it. It's in theaters with uh, sub and dub, which is really cool. <laughs> so let's go to Josh. What's your movie? Um, uh, the Killers of the Flower Moon is mm. my favorite that I've seen recently. Uh, I also saw this with Joseph. Um, so the premise is uh, that there, there's a, there's this tri- uh, Indian tribe, the Osage, that uh, some, is it, I think it was minerals or, or something that was found on their uh, land. And so they get royalties from th- that. Um, 
and and so they're they're very wealthy and uh they have white neighbors that uh basically try to steal that from them and it really focuses on a marriage between uh, a female member of the Osage tribe and uh and uh the, this white dude and so uh, Leonardo DiCaprio yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, that white and, dude <laughs> so so that is the the premise of the film okay cool well and you enjoyed it isn't it a longer film as yes, well yes it's, it's over three hours yeah. long, yeah, it's <laughs> long. <laughs> too long you think <laughs> yeah it's too long for me I guess it was okay. worth it for me yeah well Josh did fall asleep yeah that's okay. what I was you weren't supposed to right say now. that <laughs> um, for like ten minutes a third of the movie, which That's is like not three true. hours long. No. no. <laughs> cool. What were the like kind of themes it was speaking on? So it's like an Indian tribe. Is it like the director, like close in that sort it's of? It's Martin Scorsese. Oh wow, Ma- Martin Scorsese. It's not <laughs> oh, Scorsese. excuse me. <laughs> He's my god. Okay. Oh, Cin- Cinema's beloved. That's a that's a red flag for a lot of people for you to say that on air right there. Really, Martin Scorsese is your god? Yeah, I think well, he's, so. He's universally <laughs> beloved, I think, as far as filmmaking goes. Um, yeah, he just has that stigma about film bros about him. Okay. You know what I mean? <laughs> I'm kind of a film bro. It's fine. Um, cool. Um, you're moving on to mine, or yeah, I mean, did you have anything else you want to share about it? Um, not really. That's it. I think the movie's really visually. Amazing, I think. Um, it has a lot of cool people. Jesse Plemings, Leonardo, uh, Robert De Niro. Um, and then there's the uh, Osage actress. She gives a wonderful performance. She's really good. It is really long, but yeah. Cool. So, Adam. Um, well, I'm sticking with the, the holiday spirits. Um, and I did a film I watched recently um i don't know if it's still in theaters i don't believe so um but it's called the holdovers directed by mm. alexander payne he wrote it with um david hemmingson after they saw this old french film in 1935 and it had a similar plot which i, I thought was interesting but um basically it's set in 1970s new england um it's got this um boarding school you're, you're set you're in this boarding school with a bunch of you know classic like boys and it's honestly like very got this very vintage feel. They they didn't use film cameras, but they used a vintage film coloring um, to kind of give it this feeling of like you're watching an older movie, like um, like you're watching not like that a classic film, but you something know. out of the 70s. For yeah. Sure. Like, and I had no idea they used digital cameras. For yeah. That. It, it looks was, like it was, one, it was like one digital camera yeah. um, and that they focused on, but they used their, their cinematography was like their post-production on that was like really impressive. I feel like, cause it does look really mm-hmm. good. I think the graduate is a comparison that gets called on a lot Definitely. and it's just kind of like it's look and sort of feel. Um, but it's set in this boarding school in, in um, near Boston in the 1970s. It follows, um, these boys who have to stay over at their um, their school, um, Barton, like Barton Boarding School or some Barton Academy, they have to stay over for the holidays because their parents aren't able to take them, um, and so they're they're under the watch over, uh, under the watch of by one of their pro, uh, professors who's like really strict and kind of notoriously um, very you know tight and um, not very well liked among staff and. Um, the uh, other students but um soon as like time continues there's one boy who thought he was originally going to leave um his name is um angus um and he he thinks he's going to leave he ends up actually needing to stay because his parent his mother can't like take him over the holidays because she's going on a date with his stepdad or something um and so he ends up having like um a a bonding moment with like a a really like um like visceral not visceral but sort of um a coming of age yeah yeah of, yeah. of, a, of a, you say that coming of age yeah yeah i, I, think I would for way. him definitely i would say mm-hmm. so um the movie itself is sort of like catcher in the rye if anyone's read that it, it has mm-hmm. similar vibes i think okay cool um like in in what like the main character in the way it's it's kind of like an angsty you know mm-hmm. teen going around the city <laughs> <laughs> yeah that makes sense but i um i don't know it's let me let me read what i have written here i i just really like it's it's almost like it's it just feels very homey and, and simple in its nature, but still very effective in getting you to have like an emotional reaction to it. And that's almost amplified by its simplicity. Like um so you're just following like the the relationship between um Paul Hunnam, the 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 English the history teacher, played by Paul Giamatti, and the student Angus Tolley, as well as um this uh, cafeteria uh, worker, Mary Lamb, who who had a son who recently died in the um uh, Vietnam War. 
I believe, after graduating from Barton. Um, so it's kind of like following these different um, perspectives of that sort of old New England academic life, you know, like just um, kind of like following. It's like a, a period piece, but a subtle one in that like you don't even really it's it's timeless um, in that you're, you're talking about themes like war and academia uh, and affording it and stuff. But um, also it's setting you in there because like the issues they're facing of like the wars, the Vietnam War and, you know, like this sort of like um, the standards of the time are what's affecting them and that sort of thing is um, it is what brings you into like that time period really effectively and gives you kind of an interesting look at it. Um, I also think it's kind of funny. I think its humor is really effective. Um, I think it does a lot of like physical humor, like physical comedy, not in like a ridiculous like Jim Carrey. It's yeah, a little bit slapstick. I but think, like with the moments. with the chase scene and like when um, Paul Giamatti, who like obviously he's just a funny looking guy, um, even without the the lazy eye that they give him, which I feel like is a reference to Chartres, like Jean Paul Chartres, who also had a lazy really? eye. Really, I never thought of that. I think it is because I mean they look pretty similar. In and the he film. smokes a pipe too. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, um, but anyway, like he he has this like scene where he's like drinking and he like stumbles into bed, and I don't know. It's not like it's never like modern references or things that like seem like out of place or just like we're trying to get you know like a family laugh in, but it's just like hey, these are just genuinely funny things that work within the story. Um, and are just here to soften it up. Um, and it's a gorgeous film. So I just, yeah, I think everyone should watch it. So I'm going to push back a little bit. <laughs> um, I, I didn't love it as much as Adam did. And for me, it's just like I didn't have as much of a personal connection to it. I had like a hard time feeling, I don't know, like in the mood, like mm-hmm. just relating to it. For yeah. me, I think it's still good. Um, I'm curious what other people think. What do, you, do you guys know? Have you guys seen it? I watched the trailer and I was <laughs> like, that looks bad. I'm sorry. <laughs> wow. No, it's really, it's just a sweet, a sweet little story. I will say the pacing at the beginning is a little weird. Like they introduce all these boys that are going to be staying over the holidays. And then like by the second act, n- like all of the boys except for Angus are gone. So it's like we've been introduced to all these characters and like these dynamics just for them to be kind of irrelevant until the last scene at the end. So I just thought that was kind of like, I agree. you know, like they were missing, like they just wanted to get to the story, but they had a weird way of getting to the story. Um, but I think the story is is just, um, I think that the performances are what really drives it as well. I think it's their very real performances and the chemistry was really vivid as well the, as, it, as it grows. And The grieving mom, per, her performance was really mm-hmm. good. I, per, I didn't love uh, Paul Giamatti. I, just, no? I found him annoying. Yeah, he definitely seems like a dated actor now. I'm not going to, I won't say that too hard because I do, I do appreciate my dad is a huge Paul Giamatti fan. He mm-hmm. thinks, my dad thinks he looks like Paul Giamatti. He's always like, Paul Giamatti what would does play. What dad look like? Oh my God. Um, Paul Giamatti. He um, looks, okay, exactly like him. Um, I mean, pretty similar. Have you ever seen Fred Claus? That's another holiday movie. <laughs> no, I don't. I uh, Paul Giamatti plays Santa Claus in the movie Fred Claus. It's a really good movie. It's about Santa Claus's brother. Um, and my dad. Uh, thinks he looks like Paul Giamatti in that movie, um, which is pretty funny. This is, no one will care about that because no one knows my dad. <laughs> I but do, though. <laughs> I don't think they look alike. <laughs> um, anyway, um, so yeah, I, I just highly recommend it. I think the I'd never seen that the the boy Angus's actor before, um, but I think He's, he did a good. Yeah. I think he did a really strong job, like stronger than like a lot of actors his age that I've that I've seen on there before. Um, Personally. So that's the holdovers. Um, I'm going to get to mine really quick. I'll try to be fast. Uh, the one I chose was Zone of Interest. It's an A24 movie, and the synopsis is a Nazi commandant tries to build a dream life for his family near the Auschwitz concentration camp. So it comes out... Um, it came out two days ago. I've yet to see <laughs> it. Uh, it came out December 15th. Um, it premiered at Con and run, won the Grand Prix and International Film Critics Award. So there's definitely a lot of hype around this movie, like especially in mm. more art housey circles. <laughs> what drew um, what drew you to it? So it's directed by Jonathan Glazer, and he directed the movie uh, Under the Skin with Scarlett Johansson, where mm. she plays like an alien who <laughs> seduces men and murders them in Ireland. Mm-hmm. It's I loved it. I, I thought it was great, really unsettling and creepy and weird. I've never heard of that. When did that come out? That came out like 2017, 2016, I think. Okay, cool. And I don't know. It, it, if you watch the trailer, like there's something really strange about the movie (laughs) and i i just i love that stuff so that's 
that's for me. Mm-hmm. It's. I think it's funny. We should. Sorry, get off off topic. But you said we should all pick movies that haven't come out yet or and like then, are released in theaters, and you're the only one. Yeah. Like we all picked movies we've seen before. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it, it did take us a while to get to this point, <laughs> so I don't blame you guys too much. But yeah. <laughs> so um, we should go to the next topic. Um, should you want to do Josh or you, Adam? Um, either one is. You want to do me? Okay, cool. Josh um, is last, saving the best for last. Um, of some, course. <laughs> <laughs> mine is a little um, meta, I guess, in that I'm going to be talking about like kind of um, just some de- related to some like debates and like discussions we've been having recently about um, what the role of journalism uh, is and how it's changed since like it began being popularized maybe in like the early 20th century, um, specifically with like you know, having neutrality and or like objectivity. So um, I was reading this book called The Invention of Journalism Ethics by Stephen J.A. Ward. Um, And I swear it was um, available on the ACC database at some point. I've been looking more recently and it's not where I left it. Like it's not where I thought it was, which is really weird because I did read this whole book like, (laughs) and I wouldn't have been able to like purchase it. So I don't know. Um, if you're able to find it, it's The Invention of Journalism Ethics by Stephen J. A. Ward. Um, and basically, he just goes into um, kind of the important... He starts out with with um, the ideas of the importance of objectivity in journalism and also, like, where it comes... Like, the history of it. So, like, why objectivity became important. Um, and so, for just kind of a definition purposes, objectivity is the idea of trying to present reporting without any, like of your own personal bias or information or interpretation into it. Um, And um, so he goes into talking about the, um, I should preface this by saying he is a defender of objectivity in journalism, but uh, he gives the history in order to give an idea as to why the, the traditional objectivity that is used in journalistic practice isn't something that is suited for modern life because it was suited maybe in the 20th century and does have its merits in that it's important for um, people to be able to um, receive information without, you know, as, a, as little filters as possible, but also in a realistic way in that eliminating filters is not like a, like a, eliminating bias is not a perfect science. You know what I mean? It's, not, it's pretty much impossible, but there are ways to adapt it into where we can keep sort of the, the key elements of that objectivity in, in modern life. Um, so I guess we can, I'll start with just saying like the, the, the history of it was really what was interesting to me is it started post-World War I. They, um, America and like kind of modern life was having some huge problems with a little thing called propaganda. Um, like mm-hmm. it was crazy. And so people were like realizing, you know, the power of if press is working with the government or press is working with ideas, then like that's going to have crazy, like that's going to be, that's incredibly effective because people's information are um, like swayed as well. And so like another, another thing that was kind of like um, leading people towards understanding um, the power of like public opinion is the big thing is like, if you have control over public opinion, you've got control over everything. And so that was being like, you know, talked about with like intellectuals, like, um, you know, like Marxist theory and, and all that is like the public opinion is the big thing that people want so um, and pub- getting access to controlling public opinion is super easy when you have media working with, you know, an entity with an agenda. You know what I mean? Um, and another thing was like Ivy Lee and, and Edward Bernays. Uh, Bernays is like a little more. Pers- I think he's like related to Freud, actually. Like he's like a, a nephew of Freud, Bernays. But they're cool. the fathers of public relations. And so they kind of were like, um, yeah, so since, um, you know, uh, neutrality is is, you know, we, we look at everything with glasses colored by our, our own interests and prejudices. Um, then they, they started forefronting like so, pseudo propaganda efforts, but like are, that are still used today with press statements. So like when, when corporations, they believe like corporations should just give out their news directly kind of thing, you know, so they'd give out these press statements that are just like idealized forms of what they're saying. And they would rationalize it by saying that this objectivity was inevitable anyway. You know what I mean? Because like subjective ph- philosophies are going to be everywhere. Um, but it was kind of just a way to like really get in there with um, sort of sway using um, media for like a enterprise gain. You know what I mean? P- like private enterprise gain. Um, and so this guy Lipman, yeah, Lipman, Ian Lipman, I think is his first name. I could be wrong on that. I don't have the first name written. Um, he comes in and he's like, this is pretty much one of the only instances of like 
journalistic philosophy we have, or at least most recently, and it's about like the, his response to this sort of like state of journalism not having the subjectivity. Um, and so he was actually a lot more liberal, a, a lot more liberal with these like beliefs about like enforcing this reformation and these ideas. And then he comes back seeing this propaganda, seeing the effects of like the media working with an agenda. Um, and so he he's the one that was kind of like setting up this um, like he contributed to newsrooms setting up their their sort of like list of things about what what is objectivity. So like Littman was kind of enforcing factuality. So reports are based on accurate, comprehensive and verified facts. Fairness reports are, are on. Sorry. So for B is fairness reports on controversial issues, balance the main rival viewpoints and represent each viewpoint fairly. C, non-bias. Um, D, independence. Reports are the work of journalists who are free to report without fear or favor. Non-interpretation. Um, so reporters do not put their interpretations or opinion. And neutrality and detachment. So reports are neutral. They do not take sides in a dispute. Um, and so this is when like those sorts of things that are like commonly like professed in like newspaper rooms and newsrooms um, were put into place. And um, the author, Ward, argues that that's, that was done because it was what the society was needing at the time for journalism, you know, as a response to like what was going on around the world um, and like an, a, a fear of public opinion. This is what they were wanting from journalists. Um, and this is like the most valuable determined thing. But now that's incredibly different. Like we have, especially uh, as Ward points out, is the the use of non-interpretation and neutrality and detachment are the big ones that are just like not as relevant to today's world. Um, and um they were kind of like even like looking at that even back then with stuff like the the muckrackers, which kind of were, were part of starting this. Um, they were exposing, they, they made like exposés about um, like J.D. Rockefeller and the meatpacking industry. And so like there was journalism that was like outside of this objectivity that was really effective. Um, and so it was, and so like looking into that sort of thing, Ward is kind of coming up with this practical, like pragmatic objectivity is what he calls it. And so um, it's just got it's just like a different set of standards that are more, I guess, focused on keeping factuality and fairness, um, but also keeping, you know, the writer's input and the journalist's like passion into it. And like because that's what's relevant and interpretation is possible and also inevitable. So we shouldn't try and like pretend like it's not there. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So like it's the ideas of like his sort of pragmatic objectivity is kind of focused on um, having research how focusing your intentions on finding the truth of the matter instead of finding the truth that you're wanting to find you know what mm -hmm. i mean and also um is like based on getting those second opinions getting those second reviews having it looked at you know like publishing it and making it aware that this is what you're you're, you're arguing for something you know or like this is what you're believing but having it you know looked over combed over and not not treating like your opinion as the correct one um, as in because it's yours, but as in because it's you're trying to find the truth and this is like the truth for the public good, you know what I mean? And so this is the truth for the, like what you believe the truth for the public good is after going through like the processes of reaching out to like the public, getting those second opinions and like kind of finding that sort of um, objectivity within this, the, the restraints of your own bias, you know what I mean? Um, so, so it's... A, Oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, you're all good. I was going to say, uh, let's kind of open this up to the room. What is, yeah. anyone have to, does anyone have so, anything to so say? So I did reach out and I was like, let's find some, um, like some, some sort of like examples of maybe ethical dilemmas in like journalism or just like some sort of like complaints or like things in journalistic news that has happened recently that we could talk about. Um, as, as far as, um, how the, media today approaches just the just simply reporting uh, the events as you say I, I don't think that really exists very much um, uh, to give to give an example um, with uh, with Julian Assange and other whistleblowers they've uh, either been blacked out by the uh, corporate press like New York Times other sources or they've uh, They've been slandered and attacked as uh, as as terrorists, as uh, you know, a threat to national security, and they haven't been uh, defended. Yeah. So, like a lot of the problems with the corporate press is that they're like still kind of holding on to these traditional views of of objectivity, but like not accounting for the fact that they are like 
you know, a lot of the times pocket money controlled and stuff. And so like a lot of the things that you'll see with um, reporters like that who are taking a stance of like having their own interpretation um, and like publishing journalism that is like, you know, um, kind of like taking a stance on something, you know, maybe not, you know, presented as like there's clearly a, a point to this, I guess. And it's it's controversial is that you'll see like newsrooms that are following this traditional objectivity will stray away from that because it's proof that like it's for, it's just further evidence that the journalists that they're employing are not following that traditional objectivity. Does that make sense? So like when you have like examples like the um, the journalist who was fired or the several journalists who were fired from the New York Times for like supporting Palestine or like voicing their support, um, well, they were doing that like purposefully with the knowledge that they would get fired because like that's just within the rules of like those sort of traditional objectively aimed journalistic like practices is like you can't express your opinions like because it has to be under the guise of that non-bias. Now, I'm not saying that non-bias isn't there. And that's why it's partially problematic to deny that you're having that bias, you know, like by like, you know, not allowing these sorts of journalistic or like silencing these voices um, because like um, it's denying the fact that your own bias is there. Um, right. I would, I mean, I, I would, um, Sorry, I would say that the um, that I I would it would be my opinion that it's it's the responsibility of journalists really to um, to to stand up uh, stand up uh, in cases like the genocide going on mm-hmm. in Palestine, um, especially in the context of how it's been reported. To make a broad broad generalization in the media, uh, it, it's been very pro-Israel. Mm-hmm. Um, but with, with the point of Julian Assange, uh, I, I'm, I would argue that he was a non-biased reporter. He, he was just a whistleblower. He was just giving the straight facts, like exposing documents, exposing what was going on in the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. And, uh, he wasn't supportive of that because of the bias, uh, of the, of, uh, but, well, the, so how it happened was the New York times actually went and published the documents with him. But then later on, um, they would go on to uh, attack him and re- refuse to defend him when he uh, was uh, uh, was uh, persecuted by m- many different governments. Right now, he's in Belmarsh Prison in the UK, the high security prison where they keep uh, rapists and murderers. And he's doing that uh, be- just because he exposed war crimes and none of the, the people he exposed are in prison. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but they, they, they don't follow those traditional rules was my point with that. Um, well, yeah, I think so with the way that, yeah, the New York times, especially cause it's like kind of, um, um, more of, more of sort of, I guess, um, political news, um, sort of thing is they have, yeah, I agree completely with, especially with the Palestine conflict, like, um, there is a need for having like that journalistic voice. And like, I think there's more power in a journalism, a journalist that, that is speaking through their passions. But I think the idea is, especially with like this pragmatic objectivity, which isn't like Ward is not saying that this is what is used modernly. He's saying this is what should be used modern in modern times. Um, is like that you have these interpretations and you're just, you're doing the effort um, to kind of like, look at the other interpretations and include them. And, and, and you're just doing the, the fullest extent of looking for the truth as opposed to looking for proof of your own ideas. And so it does sound like, like, um, the, the journalist you're talking about, um, was like, was like following that. And it seems like weird about that response, like ridiculous. It's, it's, it's very unfair and just shows like some of the process, some of the problems in like the modern press, um, especially when they're trying to, um, work under this guise of, um, like traditional objectivity. And so that's what I mean by like a guise of traditional objectivity is that like, it's like when they are shutting out bias in their workplace or like, you know, like shutting out people with extremist beliefs is because they're working with sort of a guise of traditional objectivity because people with extremist beliefs don't work with writing objective pieces, if that makes sense. So I kind of wanted to piggyback off of you guys. Um, the article that I brought was not really an article, but uh, I wanted to talk about Noam Chomsky and like his critique of the New York Times. He mm-hmm. wrote a book um, called uh, Manufactured Consent, where he kind of like digs into the New York Times and how they are 
really influenced by corporations and how they take advertisements and stuff. And that affects the way that they view a lot of uh, situations. And I think especially through that guise of objectivity, like it it allows them to defend a lot of stuff that shouldn't Mm -hmm. be defended. I mean, I'm I'm not a journalism major, so this is not my, this is not my uh, expertise, but did you want to say something? Yeah. Well, the, what I read was the Freedom of the Press uh, by George Orwell, which was a preface that was in Animal Farm in the original manuscript. And in here, basically, he talks about like the censorship from publishers. He was a journalist, apart from being a writer. So that's why I thought that was really interesting. But what he says that happens a lot from like publishers or editors is that, um, I'm going to read it here. If publishers and ed- editors exert themselves to keep certain topics out of print, it is not because they're frightened of, of persecution, but because they're frightened of public opinion. So mm-hmm. I think that's really interesting because I think that happens a lot in regards what corporations or maybe even in a like individual level, we don't say of keep from saying because of public opinion, not because we think we don't have freedom to say it mm-hmm. because we know the freedom is there. So maybe that happens a lot of that journalist level of corporations that they just want to... They don't want to bring more conflict or they just want to go with a set agenda mm-hmm. for afraid, not for being afraid of the government, but for public opinion, basically. Right, yeah. yeah. Like for just like keeping, but, and it, a lot of it is also like ties to like who's in their back pocket, you know mm-hmm. what I mean? Like, um, so like besides just like how the public will view their news stories. Cause I feel like a, with a lot of like that big press, like corporations is like, we like, we can talk about the unethicality of like the New York Times' practices, but like people aren't going to stop reading the New York Times, so they just yeah. feel more comfortable in exercising, like subtly exercising well, p- organizations like the New York Times. I will say. Um, <laughs> so that is all the time we have for Adam's segment. Uh, let's go ahead and move on to Josh's. Do you want to go ahead and introduce it? Uh, yes. Yeah, so to wrap up today's segment, uh, I mean uh, today's episode. Um, uh, we we mentioned this before. I'm going to uh, keep us updated on the genocide in Gaza, and uh, we can have a discussion on that. Uh, so right now, the death toll stands. Uh, the official death toll stands at over uh, 16,000, 10,000 of them children, uh, 7,000 people missing, presumed to be dead. Uh, so every day, Israel just continues to drop bombs coming from the U.S. on uh, and using uh, U.S. funds on the heads of uh, innocent Palestinian people. It's it's very much a genocide. It's a textbook case of genocide, as uh, one UN official said, uh, I forget his name, um, but but uh, they're bombing UN, UN schools, uh, hospitals, um, all, all with the, compl- all with the, really at the behest of the US because Israel is a, is a proxy of the US in the Middle East. Um, as Joe Biden said, it's the best $3 billion investment that the U.S. makes. And if there was not in Israel, the U.S. would have to invent it because it's the it's the key police force of the U.S. in the Middle East. Uh, but at the same time, there continues to be mass opposition. Um, so the key really is to direct that opposition. Uh, also, I wanted to highlight the uh, targeted assassination of Rifat al of rear, he was an activist, uh, poet, uh, and he he had uh, he had actually wrote a poem right before he he died. He had mentioned uh, that he he said that if he died, it was Biden uh, and Kamala Harris's fault. Um, so so very powerful. Um, just uh, along the same lines as in many protests, you'll hear uh, Biden, Biden, you can't hide. We charge you with genocide. Um, and uh, Brian Cox, the uh, actor who played Logan Roy in Secession, read that. I, I recommend everyone listening today go and, and watch that on TikTok. It's very powerful. What's the name of the poem you said? Uh, it's If I Must Die. Okay, cool. That's inter- I think it's also, um, well, yeah, it's a tragic situation, honestly. Um, the the po- power feels so limited, so far away, but, you know, just keeping it in people's attention and, like, people aware of what's happening Um to, you know, be influenced towards like activism and making, influencing their politicians and making political decisions to like for a better future is, is incredibly important. I also think it's important to talk about maybe like the context of this conflict. I feel like there's a lot of talk about Palestine and Israel and not a lot of people 
people don't often don't go out of their way to like look at the history or of this conflict or like the kind of complexities of this um, sort of situation. Um, and so, which I think is also really powerful for like the Palestine side um, and like, you know, any side, just the, the side of the situation um, in, in understanding like where these, how these injustices like have started or, you know, where they came from. So like with the idea of like um, post-World War II, you have all the, the, the migrating Jews and the, what is it? The UN, the UN with Britain, like it was like England or whatever decided to make Israel the, the place to drop them off all the, the Jewish people that were migrating. Um, and so it was basically establishing like the, um, the, the country, the country of Israel within the people of like Palestine, um, you know, not without, not with their permission. And then eventually they just kind of leave all those Jewish people there um, and so obviously conflict is going to start between the two parties there, especially when the Jewish, like the Jewish communities are expanding pretty rapidly, especially post conflicts and repeatedly when conflicts are happening, um, because of the connection that that Jewish community has had with, you know, the, the Westerners who have, for some reason have such a play in this situation, you know, repeatedly it's kind of like, and also like various sort of just, you know, like cultural reactions and like situations and just you know, various like complexities. It's, it seems repeatedly that um, the Jewish communities are taking the side and taking the victories of like inhabiting this land um, that doesn't, that, that they were dropped into without, you know, really permission by the people that were there. You know, it's kind of a textbook case of colonialism. Um, and it's just really like crazy and, and uh, strange to see the patterns that keep just continuing. And, and it really is such a spike of like this situation and like such a, you know, conquest of not conquest but um coming together of all these different circumstances coming to a head and exploding literally right um so i i would disagree that it's it's far away because the you know the the bombs that are being used the funds that are going to israel are, are being made right here they're be coming out of our, our education our, our social security and healthcare, and it's being done in our name uh so so it's very much relevant to everyone in the United States and other major European countries, really everyone around the world because of the precedent it sets. Um, but I, I definitely agree with you that it's important to understand the history of it, of, uh, of the Israel was founded on the displacement of, uh, of the forceful displacement of the Palestinians through the, the Nakba, uh, which has been continually referenced now, uh, with Israeli officials saying, uh, you know, this is Nakba 2023, or this is uh, the new Nakba. What does that mean again? It's the, they, they have a meaning. Is that the holiday you're talking about? Or, uh, Yeah, I think they celebrate, but it, it just means the displacement of the Palestinians when Israel was founded, basically. Mm. Um, it's like the the great sorrow or something. Like I'm trying to remember what the, the yeah, catastrophe or disaster. Oh, yes. It means catastrophe in Arabic. Yeah, yeah you're right. Um, so like it, that just gives insight into like how, like what the stigma is, like the, what the longstanding sort of uh, relationship between these two bodies is and like where it comes from and like the perspectives of it. Like uh, if like they have a like historical sort of like day of remembrance called the d catastrophe and we're like, like there's um, systemic support for the side that is that had caused that holiday. It seems kind of not. I shouldn't say holiday, but that day of remembrance. It seems kind of apparently problematic. Um, you know what I mean. So a question I want to ask you guys is: um, I personally am not as uh, knowledgeable about the situation, and I feel like maybe a lot of people are not as knowledgeable as you guys, and. Like, there's, like, a real sense of hopelessness, like, with what's going on. It feels, like, really um, anxiety-inducing. So I want to ask each of you individually, like, what do you think you can do? Right. Like, what, what can we do <laughs> just as, like, you know, people over here, students over here? Mm -hmm. And I'd like to ask Adam first and then Josh. So, like, I think the idea is, well, there's just different schools of thought, I guess, with it is, like, um, there's the idea of like Palestine, like reaching its retribution in like with the, um, the, but to, to the extent of that is like what the big question is, because like there's the argument that like they should get their, their rightful land, like the land that was taken from also long ago, you know what I mean? And they should be like, they should be facing the full support of this situation. But it's also like, 
with that, we face the fear of like affecting people that are outside of the situation. So like there's like Jewish communities that are living in that area that are unrelated, like just because of like historically it's unfair that they're living there, they're living there and they're being, their lives are being threatened. Um, and the, but really I think the big issue with it right now is just the, the response, the response that has been made to the, the needs um, the need the the needs of the Palestine community, um, even though that that request for needs was like a violent um, action, the response to it has been like an unprecedented violence, you know, and not an actual response. It has been a, a, an attempt at extermination. It seems like, um, which is completely unjust. And so, because the situation seems like it's just set up for Israel's victory, you know what I mean? Like, there's just no like systemically. Israel is getting no support um, and people wise like they're not able to um, like a Palestine I mean oh, systemically Palestine. in Palestine is getting no support um, and um, all these things it, it just seems like attempting like Palestine's attempt to to win at this through violent means seems not possible so I think the like the, the most ideal way in a perfect world would be like a way for conflict first off to end and then peaceful resolution in that Palestine is compensated for a history of oppression um, that has been made and it, but in a nonviolent way, because like another point is that this anger that has been fueling for like decades long in the, in the um, Palestinian people is um, this is, a, I guess a generalization is like has like shown up in, in violent action and a lot of extremist violent action and like the extermination of like the entire like opposing side, which I think is also like an unfair thing, you know, just because violence is like, you know, not preferable. <laughs> but, you know, sometimes like it, it is arguable that it is at this point continuously been the only way to attract attention. Mm -hmm. So let's hear from Josh for a bit. Uh, right. So we're faced with a huge contradiction here. We have these mass protests involving millions of people just in the United States alone. Um, uh, and on the other, you have this political establishment that is completely united in its support for Israel, Democrat and Republican alike. They're, they're, they're in lockstep. Uh, and they've only doubled down in response to the protests. They've had, uh, McCarthyite hearings, uh, uh, expelling, uh, a, um, yeah, presidents of universities for not being tough enough on uh, on uh, support for Palestine. Um, if, if sorry, I remember they passed. Didn't they pass a resolution like kind of uh, calling for the resignation? Right, and the University of Pennsylvania. Oh, no, no, denouncing already, the denouncing um, students who are protesting. Oh yes, they did. They called them wow. terrorists. Yeah, that's insane. What what, what school was that? Uh, I mean, just uh, the it was a general. Congress. Congress. They passed oh, a resolution wow. condemning student protesters. Jesus. And that's, that's so like contradictory with their own, like, cause you can yeah. tell they're scared of like what, like the, the, what's happening in Gaza. Like they keep being like, Hey, may, Netanyahu, maybe calm down a little bit over there. You know, it's, it's hard to support you this much when you're, when you're doing all this, but it's right, like with public opinion, the way it is. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's interesting mean? because we were just talking about public opinion, but it seems that public opinion only makes them more feel more isolated and causes them to lash out more. Um, who, the the political establishment, the Democrats and the Republicans, mm. um, even so-called socialists like Bernie Sanders, uh, <laughs> he's uh, he's very virulently pro-Israel. Same with AOC. Um, now he's a Jewish man, correct, Bernie Sanders? Yes, but the the Judy, Ju like like the very premise that Judaism is equal to Zionism is yeah. anti-Semitic in itself. Yeah. Um. Like many Jews have been at the forefront of the protest for the rights of the Palestinians because they see the same horrors of the Holocaust being perpetrated against the Palestinians. Mm -hmm. um, but back back to the the question of what can we do? Um, we we need to to take this into our own hands. It's clear that the political establishment is not going to do this, um, and we need to follow the call of the Palestinian trade. Uh, organizations to fight for strikes in the workplaces where these weapons are being manufactured and uh, just a political general strike more broadly to stop um, to stop funding to Israel. And th that's what's going to stop this. Not not um, boycotts, not these protests alone. The protests are necessary, 
but they're not enough. And so what we need to do is we need to fight for these strikes. We need to organize um, and uh, and ultimately, I, I we need to fight to unite workers here and in Israel, in Palestine, um, because their interests are all, all united against a, a common oppressor um, and ultimately fight for a, a one state solution. Two state solution has not not worked uh that a, a secular state that gives equal rights uh to to jews and palestinians uh many prominent uh jewish as well as palestinian intellectuals have argued for this um and um one with like a connected government as opposed to because it does seem right. like the, the government bodies are the people kind of are the bodies kind of creating this sort of religious discontent you know what i mean so i guess combining those government bodies into one effective one with outside of like secular as you're saying i could see that like it just seems also like kind of unrealistic you know enforcing like a government system in a in in a country that's very distant from ours and with people that are very culturally different from us right they have they, they have to be it has to be in their hands um and uh outside of the hands of of us imperialism obviously and i think you uh you hit the nail on the head when you said said that uh, you know they're the ones creating the religious discontent. Some people are saying, you know, this has just been going on for centuries. It's just religious strife. There's no end to it. But no, it's really being perpetuated um, by these forces, like mm-hmm. you were saying. I, I think that's that's a really important point. Um, but the, really, the only way to realize this state ultimately uh, outside of the the interests of of these major Western powers that have really created this situation is through a struggle for international socialism. That is the, <laughs> the perspective of, uh, of the Socialist Equality Party, the group which I'm a part of. You, uh, had, to, so, you had to fit it in there. Huh? So <laughs> yeah. read the World Socialist website, uh, fight for socialism, and uh, f- fight for a strike. To clarify, not everyone in this podcast believes yeah. in that. Some uh, opi- these, opinions these are oh, each right. our own. We didn't, we didn't put the disclaimer we'll, at the front. <laughs> that we'll ACC, do the disclaimer. Yeah. Okay. We'll record that later. Opinions so with that, I think that's our time. Um, do we have any cl- concluding thoughts? What, what did y'all think of the first podcast? No, I thought it was really fun. Was I think we, cool. I think Yeah, we, very fun. I was surprised. I'm I'm very happy with how it turned <laughs> out. You were surprised? Well, yeah, I, I had... I Ever had, the uh, pessimist. Yeah. <laughs> Um, no, yeah, I mean, once you do research on something, it's fun to talk about it, I guess, you know, I'm glad we have the space to do this. Thank you, ACC. Yeah. (laughs) Yes, thank you, Co-op. Oh, and Co-op Radio. (laughs) I meant ACC for accent, I guess. Yeah. (laughs) Um, but yeah, if that's wrapping up everything, I think that's wrapping up the show then. Yeah. So thank you guys so much for listening. If we have any listeners. Wait, wait, wait. <laughs> I, I do have one point. Okay. Um, it, it's not it's not me fitting it in there. Like like <laughs> the fight of all all forms of oppression has to be united. It, it's an essential point. It's not. I meant it's not s- my agenda just being stuck on at the end. No, I meant the socialist the socialist party plug. Oh, okay. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was I was specifically talking about your plug for the I- IYSSE or whatever. Or the <laughs> so with that, I think that's it. Thank you. Period. Bye. Bye, guys.